everyone. Welcome to A Gut Feely. My name is Jake and I'm joined here today with Dave. As health coaches and educators, we've helped thousands of clients optimize their life by healing their gut. Our aim with this podcast is to provide you with some of those tools. Now, before we get into it, don't forget to check out the show notes for links to our social media profiles. And if you like what we've got to say, go with your gut and give this podcast a follow. Now, let's get into today's show. <laughs> So we're going to talk about blood markers today. And what we want to do is actually contrast, um, I guess, some of the narratives that we get told to maybe some alternative narratives that maybe aren't actually talked about all that much. And so there's a couple of particular blood markers we want to go over and talk about, well, if you were to go to a doctor's office and get these blood markers tested and they came back high or low, kind of what you're more likely to be told. And then we want to sort of flip it on its head and, and give maybe an alternative story to maybe what those markers could be telling us. Maybe we're missing when we just look at it through the lens of conventional medicine. Now, obviously, you know, this podcast is for educational purposes only. And, you know, we're not telling you guys kind of, we're not interpreting your blood work for you. This is just us opening up a conversation, but these important conversations, because we do hear from people all the time, like, you know, this mark was out, this mark was high. I got told X, Y, Z. And sometimes there's a lot more to the picture and to the story than just kind of what we're being told. So let's jump straight into it, Dave. Let's, let's jump into a marker off the bat and, and kind of talk about maybe what people might be told if that mark is high or low, which marker you want to begin with? Just, just before I do that, okay, well, I'll try and do it as quick as I can. Okay. But I just think like what, what we're, what this podcast is really about and, you know, jump in if you don't agree with what I'm saying here. Okay. Is we're just asking people to ask questions. Yeah. Okay. We're just trying to get away from this like black and white thinking or, or what I would call black, black and white thinking, like sort yeah. of like polarized thinking. Yeah. And, and you might say this is like cognitive distortion, like whether that's a, like a bit of a strong word. Okay. But it's just like the, the human body has so many nuances and it's built on all that. We, we always say this, it's built on all these like axes, you know, gut to liver axis, gut to kidney axis, the enteric nervous system, the gut to reproductive access okay so it's built on all these accesses and there's so many of these nuances you really have to look at all these relationships and these yeah. correlations and this, so there's just what i'm saying is you can't you can't look at the human body through this black and white this linear lens and this polarized thinking i'm not saying that there's not an importance to to understand something you know that particular function to the nth degree okay but then also you need to understand the nuances in between that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully that comes up in our conversation today that, you know, when we talk about these markers, you're probably going to hear us talk a lot about, you need to look at X, Y, Z markers as well. You need to look at the overall pattern. And like you said, that's part of the conversation that gets missed. A lot of this stuff is just looked at in isolation. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the big point that we're, and, and maybe we could use a lot more examples than we're, than we're using in this particular podcast. And then maybe we probably break down another podcast where we'll use other examples. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, and we sort of like, I, I think today we, we sort of decided to break them down into categories. Okay. And, you know, I think a good place to start um, and the category that we sort of wanted to talk about first is like what, what happens when you just look at, look at it through that sort of like polarized thinking mm. where you're just looking at it very linear, very black and white. Okay. And you're just addressing it according to that marker and not understanding the nuances. That's what we're trying to get across with this first example. And that is actually uh, urea. 
maybe I'll just break down like, you know, what urea is. Yeah, it gives a bit of an overview is what it is. Yeah, so, so urea basically is a waste product from protein metabolization. Now in the, in the medical realms, and obviously we look at it through this lens as well, okay? They're looking at it in regards to renal function. And for people who don't know what I'm talking about here with renal function, kidney function, basically. Uh, and we're just talking about, so when we consume protein, I'm sort of trying to break this down as simple as I can, okay? Uh, with protein, you get waste products and you get like nitrogen byproducts. And so these waste products from protein metabolization, that's basically what we're looking at here, the, the nitrogen byproducts will get converted into ammonia. And then ammonia will get converted in, in the liver into urea. And that's obviously what we're, we're, look, we're looking at the urea levels within the bloodstream. And then urea will get excreted via the kidneys. And actually, we obviously excrete it out of the body via urine. So that's, that's what we're looking at here. Okay. And, you know, in terms of like how we clear these toxic byproducts, like people might've heard of this, but uh, maybe not. Okay. But we've got the, the urea cycle, the ornithine cycle. And a lot of time when people are consuming a lot of protein, a lot of, uh, you know, whether it be a lot of animal protein, a lot of amino acids, okay. They might try to manipulate the urea or the ornithine cycle. But once again, the, the role of the urea cycle, the ornithine cycle is to actually help with the clearance of these toxic byproducts. And that involves amino acids. And you've got things like arginocinic acid, because it's a bit of a complex one. I hope I pronounced that right. Okay. And you've got things like aspartate, you've got like arginine, you've got citrulline, you've got ornithine. Okay. And it's like sometimes when people are consumed, like in the bodybuilding realms and so forth, uh, when they're consuming high amounts of protein, they might try to manipulate that through having things like citrulline and, and, and having some of these amino acids to help with that. But obviously what we're going to talk about is that some of the things that people aren't really taking into consideration. And so how this probably gets assessed, and, and we need to understand that are there issues when you've got high amounts of urea? So when the levels are high, can this display with you know particular health issues and so forth? Okay. Well, you can get immunoglobulin A, and you can actually get a high accumulation of that in the kidneys, and that can actually create some obviously issues within the kidneys. And so, yes, you can get like kidney disease and all that type of stuff. But a lot of time, you know, it would display just from a symptom perspective, like people just feeling really fatigued, uh, a lot of lethargy. You might actually lose appetite as well, okay? That can happen. So, and obviously I, I want to make it clear, okay, that also you can have, the levels can be too low, okay? Mm -hmm. I don't know if like, if you just want to talk about, like, because obviously we do talk about like normal ranges and optimal ranges. Uh, and I think we've broken down like what the differences are there around like in the medical realms, they're really looking at averages and a lot of these, what they say is normal ranges are not really correlated to large population research all the time. And there's, so that's some of the limitations and you're still at risk of mortality issues like death and even certain diseases. So I just got to put that out there, but maybe you just want to talk about like some of the the differences in the in what we would say would be optimal ranges and mm. i think we're pretty similar on this even though we can have some some minor variances yeah i mean okay. we didn't check this um, <laughs> let's let's well, see how similar we are be interesting to see but yeah. maybe you can just talk about like yeah what what the differences are in terms of the optimal ranges and the normal ranges in the medical realms yeah so like you said you know obviously the the conventional values these are based on on just averages of what the lab is seeing and in, in all the people getting the blood test done so the labs will change a little bit. So depending on which lab you go to, it's going to be a bit different. And obviously there's international units and, and overseas it might be testing more like bun, blood urea, nitrogen, um, and, and using different measurements than what we might be using over here. But typically speaking, um, what's interesting, I find this interesting with urea is that there's some markers, and we're going to talk about some in a moment, where the window that they accept is 
massive, absolutely huge. And and we would say that maybe there's some, some pretty big issues with having such a broad window. Now, some of these markets like urea and another one that's a good example would be creatinine. Typically, the conventional value is actually quite small. And so conventionally, they would say like a lot of labs work off about 7.0 millimoles as the upper limit. Now, that's not actually that different to what I would class as optimal values. I work up to about 6.9 or thereabouts. What do you go up to, Dave? I'm just a little bit lower. Yeah, so, so maybe this, my, my optimal is just a, the range is just a little bit smaller. Okay. Uh, but I work up to 6.0. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, and, you know, I, I would also say in that context, you want to be looking at the person in front of you. And so, you know, well, we both do work with more you know, fitness population. But if you are working with people who are more athletes, who are consuming the upper end of, you know, kind of what you would say would be, you know, optimal dietary protein intake, that's where you're going to expect to see it a little bit on that upper end. You know, if you're working with a vegan client, a, a woman in her 70s who's eating hardly any protein and her urea is 6.5, 6.9, then you should be thinking, well, what's going on here? That doesn't really add up. So it does depend a lot on the individual in front of you. But yeah. I guess what I find interesting here is the medical values or conventional values and optimal values are not that different. And I tend to see this a lot with, with markers around like protein, markers around um, like muscle protein synthesis, muscle mass, creatinine sort of has a little bit to do with that. And ultimately we're, we're looking at populations who aren't eating a lot of protein, who aren't well muscled, and that's reflecting in the conventional values. And so in, in this area, the, 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 the difference in values is, is not really that significant. Now, I would argue probably the lower end is the one that's maybe more important in some conventional labs, you know, they're working off about 2.9 as the lower level. I work off about 4.0. I'm 4.3, so it's pretty similar. So, okay, yeah. So I've got a, so, and obviously we're talking about obviously the metrics that they use in countries like Australia. I think like yep. Canada might be similar and uh, UK. So obviously there's certain countries that use similar metrics, but it's obviously a little bit different in the US. But obviously uh, the, the point that we're trying to get across here is that how much um, variance there is actually within the, the normal ranges within medical, okay, and the optimal ranges, what mm. we would base on optimal ranges. Mm. And so you sort of touched on, you know, if someone goes to a doctor and, and they get this test back and it's sitting, let's say it's sitting at 7.0 or something, it's sitting a bit elevated. Typically speaking, that because like you mentioned, it is obviously a byproduct of protein metabolism, then they're going to look at that and say, well, you're eating too much protein. And the issue is here is what if you do have a 70-year-old vegan grandmother who walks in and has urea high and they say eating too much protein is that what's happening for that individual i would argue it's clearly not what that individual's issue is and you know you've mentioned how it's used to assess you know kidney function renal function well in that instance you absolutely need to be looking at other markers and yes creatinine is going to be important but potassium sodium we want to see what's going on from an electrolyte standpoint to just look at urea by itself is madness because there's other things that you touched on that could be causing an elevation, isn't it? Yeah, and that's and that's the thing. Like we're not, we're probably not going to, in this particular podcast, like go through all what those other potential correlations might be. Okay, but obviously the point that we're really trying to get across here is that you can't just look at that one particular marker and just go, oh, well, the urea is high, so they must be consuming too much protein. So just yeah. just lessen the amount of animal protein, or just lessen the amount of protein that you're consuming. Okay, yeah. it's not as simple as just like, okay, it's high lessen the amount of protein you're consuming. Oh, it's low. Maybe just increase the amount of protein that you're consuming. It's just not that simple. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And I think that's what we're going to talk about. Like this, 
there's all these other variables yeah. and, and bear in mind what we're talking about is we're not, t- we're talking about all the variables within the particular marker. We're not talking about all the variables, you know, when you're comparing the urea with other blood markers yeah. and all the other like correlations and all the other variables that you will see. Yeah. And, and that's, that's fundamental for people to understand that, you know, we're going to mention a few possibilities of why urea might be elevated outside of just too high a protein intake. And the way that you can then narrow it down and see, well, is it more likely this or this or this is to compare to some of those other markers. Now, like you said, we don't kind of go through all those other markers, but if you just look at this one mark in isolation, you would have no way of knowing. So you need to look at other markers. You need to look at the person in front of you. And then ideally look at context, look at symptoms, look at, again, you get someone who comes in and you, and you look at the diet log and they're not eating any protein Pretty good indicator. It's not going to be that. So we need to be looking, you know, more broadly than just at this single individual marker. And we're, and we're, we're not. We, we want to make it clear. It uh, also is we're not saying that in that instance that it's not a possibility that the answer isn't to like lower the protein consumption to 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 help to rectify the issue. We're not yep. saying that, but. Just from our experience, we would say that most of the time it's some of these other things that we're oh, going to talk yeah. about. Okay. That would be the. So the, rarely is that the situation. I can yeah, barely exactly. think of any cases where that's been it. So it's going to be the things that we're going to talk about now that are going to be the more dominant reasons yeah. to why there is, especially what we're going to talk about, like there's higher levels of urea within the bloodstream. Yeah. Um, so should we get into some of those? Yes. Let's, let's give them. Yeah. What are they? All right, so I think it's really important, and there's there's obviously a lot more technicalities to this, but it's, I think it's important for people to understand that there's also there is generally higher amounts of ammonia within the intestinal tract, so within the within the gut, and so this is going to have a big bearing on that because people go, oh, so is that that's a little bit separate? But the way it works is the higher amounts of ammonia that actually generate within the gastrointestinal tract, they actually go into the, the bloodstream, and so then they go into the bloodstream, and is that going to have an impact on things like? your liver because obviously the ammonia has got to get converted to urea in the liver. And is that going to have an impact on your kidneys? Yes. Cause it's got to ex- get excreted via the kidneys. And then once again, as I said, you excrete it via urine. Okay. So, so the ammonia that is actually getting produced within the gastrointestinal tract is going to have a big impact on this. And then people would go, well, I don't get it. Like, where is this ammonia coming from? Okay. And a, a big contributor to this is actually bacteria. Surprise, surprise. And actually, and we've spoken about this particular bacteria group, like, you know, very often, okay, we're probably going to break this down in, a, in, a, in another podcast, okay, where we just talk about like negative gram bacteria and LPS lipopolysaccharides and talk about all the negative impacts that it can have within within the body. It's huge. Um, but like negative gram bacteria actually generates a high amount of ammonia. And so, you know, some of these negative gram bacteria strains, not going to break down every single one, but we do talk about like the big four, like, you know, the big four, like the more pathogenic strains like Klebsiella. And once again, Klebsiella is the broad group and there's all these individual strains underneath that, like Klebsiella, Oxytoca, Klebsiella pneumonia. You've got like Enterobacter, you've got Pseudomonas, you've got Citrobacter, but obviously there's other ones as well, Escherichia coli, E. coli. So a lot of these negative gram bacteria strains they actually generate a lot of ammonia. And then you get a lot of ammonia that goes into the bloodstream. Okay. And that's going to contribute to a to a, a massive increase in the urea. And it's not uncommon, okay. Like you see people with these like negative gram bacteria issues. And then you're you're looking at some of the other correlations that relate to negative gram bacteria, like GGT, like gamma glutamyl transferase, fasting insulin. Well, obviously, we're not going to go through every single one, but you see these ones and they're 
and and yeah. and, and they're, they're obviously out of the the optimal ranges and more in line with what you would see with exposure to lps like lipopolysaccharides and then you can see this inconsistency with the urea as well and actually you know one of the byproducts from bacteria is like urease and the the, the role in this instance but actually you got protein and it decomposes the protein into ammonia. And so this would relate to, because you actually look at one of the byproducts from H. pylori, mm. helicobacter. Well, that is negative gram bacteria. And one of the byproducts from H. pylori, helicobacter overgrowth is urease. And that's why a lot of the time, like when, when there's high amounts of urease, okay, uh, in the instance of, of H. pylori, helicobacter, uh, the person would have a bit of a, an ammonia smell mm. to their breath. And that's not an off-putting smell. It's like a bit of a chemically smell to their mm. breath and actually having a, you know, a bit of a chemically smell, that ammonia smell to their sweat. So I'm not saying it's the most off-putting smell, but so then you can see what's happening in this instance, the high amounts of ammonia. And then could that off-skew something like urea, have higher levels mm -hmm. of urea? For sure, okay? And actually there's even other bacteria strains that have actually been linked to higher amounts of ammonia as well. And actually Enterobacter sort of mentioned that one. And Enterobacter does have a link to SIBO. So we'd also have to say, that, and considering SIBO a lot of the time is predominantly negative gram bacteria, especially things like Escherichia coli, bacteroids, but obviously like positive gram bacteria strains as well. But Enterobacter has been linked to, especially more like SIBO within the ileum, just to let you know, but that has been linked to SIBO. Other ones like Micrococcus, I think there's Streptococcus, which is also linked to pathogenic strains of Streptococcus linked to SIBO. And, and bacillus strains, not all bacillus strains are, are non-pathogenic, okay? There are pathogenic strains of bacillus. But some of these strains that I'm talking about have also been linked to higher amounts of ammonia, and this is going to have a, a negative impact on high urea levels. So theoretically, you I know, get someone... I know, I know I've said a lot there, but... Yeah, there's a yeah. fair bit there, but yeah, you get yeah. someone who walks in and, and they do this test and, and they've got symptoms like IBS-type symptoms, you know, bloating or loose stools, diarrhea, constipation, whatever... They're not eating, you know, they, they've got normal kidney function. That doesn't seem to be a concern for them. They're not eating 400 grams of protein a day. Um, and then they've maybe, maybe represented in other blood markers might be suggesting negative gram bacteria or SIBO. And so maybe we're seeing deficiencies. Maybe we're seeing low GGT. Um, even, even the immune cells. I mean, that's quite common yep. for like total white blood cell count and neutrophil count to be elevated, but also understand long exposure where it's quite chronic. Okay. It could obviously go the other way where the total white blood cell count, the neutrophil count is more, there's more immunosuppression going on there as mm. well. And even like CRP, even though I wouldn't necessarily say it's, a, it's quite a sensitive marker, like C-reactive protein, that's a, like an inflammatory marker, but that can give you some insight because obviously with LPS and negative gram bacteria, you are going to raise a lot of pro-inflammatory protein mm. like TNF-alpha, interleukin-6, interleukin-1, even like uh, interleukin-32. I mean, a lot of these pro-inflammatory proteins get really raised. And so that can also increase something like CRP in that instance. But obviously, we, do want, we don't want to go too much into mm. all the correlations for LPS and negative gram bacteria. But it is, it is certainly a marker we could use to build a case that someone might have high amounts of LPS. And so that's something which I've never heard talked about in, in the medical realm. I've never heard a client come to me saying, my doctor said I had high urea, it could be LPS. It's something which is completely overlooked. Um, and then the point is, yeah, okay, so like if, that, if, if that's the issue, and we would say from our perspective that a high majority of the time, that would most likely be the issue. And we're not just saying that, okay, it's just, it's negative gram bacteria overgrowth, like all the time, okay? Um, hmm. Because actually, interesting enough, like I know, it's probably not as prevalent, okay, but even like small amounts of yeast, 
that, that uh, they don't produce this high amount of ammonia, but they, I think there's small amounts of ammonia that can get produced in this instance. So, so if they've even got the combination of that, that could actually have some impact on that as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just playing devil's advocate a little bit. Should we touch on the dehydration piece? Cause that obviously can be a big factor. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you want to go into that, I mean, just, just to the, you know, obviously we've talked about how it can be related to kidney function and, and I guess in, easily and often overlooked piece of that is simply dehydration. And, you know, this is an easy one where there's other markers that are really clearly indicated someone's dehydrated. We can look at albumin, we can look at electrolytes, sodium, potassium. And if all these are elevated, because this is a pretty common pattern you'll see, right? Like high urea, albumin, 48, 49, 50. And you see this going on. To me, it makes no sense to even ask, you know, what else is happening here? Like it's very clear in this instance, this is just due to dehydration. And then you can ask the person, hey, did you have any water before the blood test? You you keep on going. I was just going to say, a lot of the time, people don't realize they can drink water before they get the bloods done. And so they're like, oh, no, I haven't had any water since yesterday at 5 p.m. And they've gone, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours without water. It's like, okay, well, that's probably what's going on with the urea. And now we're looking and we're saying, oh, crap, you've got kidney dysfunction or you've got even, you know, even using it as an LPS marker. We're, now we're suddenly making a mountain out of a molehill because our person just didn't drink any water. And that, and that's the thing. And we can actually add even some, some other ones to that. Okay. And I mean, like even once again, I'm sort of like playing devil's advocate here, but you can look at the impact of even like herbicides and pesticides. So even if we look at like glyphosate and then there's glufosinate, okay. I think glufosinate is another one as well, but that actually inhibits with glutamine synthetase. The, the role of that particular enzyme, glutamine synthetase, is actually to help with the clearance of ammonia. I'm not saying that that is the reason to mm. why the, mm. the urea is high, okay, but if the person does actually have these herbicides and pesticides, mm. okay, and there's there's higher amounts that are actually getting consumed in the fu- foods they're eating and so forth, then that's actually going to have uh, a bearing also. And they also say that even people with, with particular like gene mutations, genetic mutations, like sulfur metabolization issues, Things like the CBS gene, the SUOX gene. I'm not going to go too heavy into this, mm. okay? But even when people have like sulfur metabolization issues, that can have like a, a potentially negative uh, impact on urea levels. So the urea levels can be a little bit more elevated in this instance. But I, I think the point that we're sort of like trying to get across here is that there's many layers to this. Yeah. And, and so when did it get to a point where it's just like, okay, that's high. So just don't eat much protein. Yeah. Or, or, or it's low, so just eat a little bit more protein. Because you, you really, to really get what the answer is, okay, then you want to start to correlate it with markers that also represent LPS and negative gram bacteria issues, or might even represent like exposure to herbicides and pesticides, or markers that would be representation of dehydration and, and, yeah. and, and micronutrient deficiencies. And, and once you get more of that information, then you can go, well, actually it is more dehydration. Okay. Yeah. It, or it yeah. is more negative gram bacteria. And then you can start mapping the, the correct protocol to rectify that. Okay. Yeah. It, it just can't, because you could say that um, just abiding by just like, I just minimize your protein consumption. Like if that person's already like malnourished, they've got protein synthesis issues, there's protein maldigestion, protein malabsorption, you know, they've got other issues within the gastrointestinal tract. Just telling that person just to minimize their protein consumption could actually just make them feel even worse. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it it may even be, it might even be the the wrong thing, like the actual worst advice you could give. You know, I, I think back to a client I had, 
who she was anorexic and, and she would have weighed, I don't know, all of 30 to maybe low 40 kilos. And she went to the doctor and, and at the time her cholesterol was high. Now she would have been under huge amounts of adrenal stress. And the doctor looked at her cholesterol values and said, you need a diet, you need to lose weight. And this is someone who, who was in the middle of an eating disorder who had been hospitalized twice for anorexia. And that client also had high urea. Now, whenever I look at bloods, and I'm sure you're the same, I always want to kind of make a case of what I think the most obvious answer is, right? Like you said, there's, there's 20 different things that could be going on. So let's see what's the most obvious explanation here. And then let's see if that stacks up with all the other inputs and information I'm getting. And so in her case, her urea was high. She's massively under eating. Is it most likely to me that she's over-consuming protein? No. What if, and I know we've talked about this and, and I've not particularly seen studies to back this up, but hypothetically, what if being in this huge deficit, being in a catabolic state, could that have been breaking down proteins and causing an increase in ammonia and increase in urea? Could that have been affecting it? You know, that's plausible. Could she have had LPS affecting it? That was plausible as well. She had a lot of IBS type symptoms. So to me, you know, there's, there's so many other clues that are being thrown at us all the time. If we're just listening to it and looking for it, that's kind of what our job should be as health practitioners or, or whatever is we want to build a case of what is, if we look at the whole picture, what is the most likely thing that's happening here? And then it's going to tell us a different story than just minimize your protein intake. Exactly. And then, and then also like, I think people, you know, they might be looking at the particular blood marker and, 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 and we've learned this in the past. Okay. And, you know, they might look at urea and just go, okay, well, the urea is low and just in, increase your protein consumption. Okay. All oh, the urea is high. I'll look at things like, you know, vitamin C, these types of things. Okay. But I mean, we're not, we're not going to go down that realms. Okay. Because we're not trying to just address that particular one marker. What we're trying to understand here is what has off skewed the urea. Yeah. Okay. So what is the, the, the major problem that is off-skew off your urea, urea and to rectify the urea, we've got to fix that problem. That's what yeah. it comes down to. Yeah. Dave, we better jump into the yeah, next let's, marker. let's jump into another one. Otherwise, otherwise, we're just going to talk about urea the whole <laughs> this, time. Yeah, the whole podcast will just be urea. We could do it. Maybe we should just keep going. Um, alkaline phosphatase. This is one of my favorite markers. It tells us a lot and it's a big clue. It's a big clue to a lot that's going on, but it's so overlooked. So maybe give us a bit of an overview. What yeah. is ALP? Well, well, I think it's important once again to start. What is the category that we're sort of talking about yeah. here? And so we've, talk, we've, we've decided to use this one as an example of like, what happens when you just, once again, it's that polarized sort of thinking where you're just really looking for it to be really elevated. Yeah. Okay. So you're just looking for it to be really elevated. And that would be a sign in this instance that this particular liver enzyme is just flooding the bloodstream basically. Okay. Yep. And in the medical realms, they might look at that in the realms of like liver disease. And then they might correlate it with other liver enzymes like GGT, gamma glutamyl transferase. And when the GGT is high, the ALP is high, they're going to say, well, this is a good indication around like liver disease, maybe like pressure on the kidneys as well in that instance. So th that's really what they're looking for as they're just looking for it to be really, really elevated. 
Now, ALP is a liver enzyme. So obviously it's produced within the liver, but also you do find it within the bone. And so one thing I want to make clear, it can be a good sign around like even like bone injury, like poor bone calcification. So it can tell you some aspects around that. Okay. But this is one people didn't know kids will have a much higher level of ALP because of bone Correct. growth. So yeah. the amount so of time I get a message, yeah. yeah, people have messaged me like, oh my God, my, my kid's ALP is like 200. It's like, it's okay, calm down. Yeah. And also well, the other one, just to put people at ease, okay, if you yes. haven't been told this before, there's also ALP within the placenta, okay? Yeah. And so when you're pregnant, the ALP is, is, is obviously going to be affected. And there's also- I've had clients like- who didn't know they were pregnant and we worked it out because of the ALP. <laughs> yeah, well, you can. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you can obviously use it as an indication around yeah. pregnancy. Okay. So, and then the, you do get ALP, small amounts, smaller amounts within the kidneys and the intestines as well. And the, the one aspect that I sort of want to focus on a little bit more with like ALP. Okay. So you, once again, in the medical realms, they're really going to look at it around like, like bone injury, like pregnancy, liver disease, the, these types of health complications. But the way to look at like ALP is that it is actually most present within these cells within the liver. And they're actually called cup for cells. I'd, I'd always advise like a lot of the things that we talk about here, go away, do a little bit of research around it. And like cup for cells, they're like the macrophage within the liver. And, and people are just going to go, what the hell is he talking about? I'm just talking about your almost like your innate immune response within the liver. And so it, it would actually deal with like dead and dying erythrocytes as well. And you'd almost say like the liver's like almost like the final immune sort of barrier after the gut lining. So it's like super important. And, and sometimes I say to people that the liver is like almost like an extension of the gut lining. So it's like, it's like the last line of defense. And so what cup for cells do is they really deal with also parasitic debris. Okay. So things like bacterial byproducts. And so it can be a good indication, okay, especially when that's overburdened, that obviously the liver is having to produce more cup for cells because there's more debris coming from the the, the gastrointestinal tract and coming from the intestines and basically overburdening the liver, ramping up the cup for cells and increasing like ALP levels. And we all, you know, I think we have spoken about before, but we talk about the gut to liver axis. Once again, the body's just built on all these axes. And a lot of the time, the liver's getting overburdened with these bacterial byproducts. And that could be things like TMA, trimethylamine, uh, TMAO, trimethylamine and oxide, even things like secondary bile acids, short chain fatty acids like acetate, propionate, ethanol, acetaldehyde. And so, I mean, obviously I could go further down the rabbit hole. Okay. But my, my point is a lot of these, these byproducts, a lot of these, th- these compounds are basically overburdening the liver. And so if we looked at it and the ALP is really, really high, okay, maybe you're, you're probably going to go into some of the optimal ranges that so just people can, can get like a, like a, a bearing on the discrepancies mm. around the normal, the medical ranges and the optimal ranges. Okay. But a lot of the time if the ALP is high, it like, is it just a case like you just got liver disease? Okay. Like, is that the only reason? And because mm. cup for cells, a lot of the time it's a representation around non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but just fatty liver disease. But you like non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, a huge culprit behind that is bacterial metabolites and bacterial yeah. byproducts. Just, just so people understand. Okay. And that's what, that's where we probably get a little bit confused is what, like, why isn't that one of the first things that gets talked about? Cause from our perspective, it should be the first thing that gets talked about. Okay. Mm. Um, and I'm not taking away from the lifestyle factors like drinking alcohol and, you know, poor lifestyle. I'm not taking away from that, but from our experience, a lot of people's major issues 
are gut related, they're bacterial related. And so also the, the opposite is true as well. If someone's been exposed to a parasite, like a protozoal parasite for a long period of time, they've had a lot of bacterial issues. So like what we're what I'm saying now is it's chronic, okay? So when it's acute, so initial exposure to parasitic infection, we'd expect the ALP to be more elevated, okay? Because it's more cut for selectivity. Yeah, and then like over time, it's not like you're, your cup for cells are going to be affected. And then there's a lowering here. And then we'd expect actually the ALP to be actually on the lower end. And a lot of the time, like we can see it. And yes, it could be a sign of like, you know, leaching of the bone, poor bone calcification. I'm not taking away from that. Uh, a lot of time we might use it as an indication around like malnourishment and under eating, crash dieting. Okay. So once again, we're not just saying it's parasitic infection and, and bacterial related, but also that the cup for cell activity can be on the lower end. Once again, the ALP is most present in the cup for cells and that's why the ALP is really, really low. And people can have like ALP levels of like 30, 40, and they've just been sitting in that realms for a very, very long period of time, which basically means it's chronic and they've been exposed to the parasitic infection or whatever that might be for an extended period of time. So just to go back for a moment. Yeah, do you want to talk just, just about the, the values? Yeah, yeah, we yeah. can talk about that. So basically... This is, a, this is one I find very funny. This, I think, illustrates just how, I guess, insane using conventional values is. So if we were to look at, I mean, I work off optimal values of around 70 to 100. I have considered lowering 75, that moment. Yeah. 75, yeah, yeah, okay. So pretty similar. Now, in, in the last lab that I looked at, the last Australian lab I looked at, that their values were below 130. So that means theoretically you could get an ALP back at one. I've never seen one that low, but it could be one and it would not be outside of their reference range, which is madness, absolute madness. How can you possibly have liver enzymes that have no bottom end value? That is insane. And this is, it's obviously not the only marker like this. ALT, AST, a lot of these markers, I've seen cholesterol where labs say there's no lower level. You could come back at 1.0 for total cholesterol and that was, there wouldn't be an issue with that. You'd be dead, but it wouldn't be an issue. So this is insane. But just before we sort of continue that conversation, I want to go back because you mentioned obviously about parasites and, and sort of different endotoxins and, and bacterial debris and all this kind of stuff. And this is a huge value of different liver enzymes is that different endotoxins seem to affect different liver enzymes, don't they? And so GGT potentially, well, you know, more affected by things like LPS, ACLT potentially affected more by acetaldehyde. Now, what is it specifically? I'm not sure if, if you can answer this or not, Dave, but what is it about parasites that's affecting cupfer cells potentially more than maybe bacterial or yeast is, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. And like sometimes you know, when, when people do ask me that, it's, it's hard to be really definitive to why certain liver enzymes. So for example, mm. like GGT, gamma glutamyl transferase, um, which is also a pretty good example of like most of the time what they're looking for is for it to be really elevated. And they're looking around like fatty liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, maybe caffeine sensitivity, alcohol consumption, all those types of things. But they very rarely look at it being a problem when it's low. Yeah, yeah. Okay? And we've had people where it's extremely low. And for us, like GGT, that's one of the most important blood markers they can actually look at it, look at because it's a reflection of longevity. Because GGT, gamma glutamyl transferase, the glutamyl cycle is really like the glutathione cycle. So it's actually a reflection of your ability to synthesize glutathione from the liver. So it's a reflection of your glutathione pools. 
So that's a reflection around oxidative stress, free radical damage, your ability to clear you know, bacterial byproducts, things like xenobiotics, xenoestrogens, heavy metals, plastics, all these things. But for some reason, that um, LPS tends to catabolize your glutathione pools. So it actually more LPS exposure. So more mm. like negative gram bacteria overgrowth. And that can come from obviously SIBO as well. But if it is more like negative gram bacteria overgrowth, like I've talked about, like Enterobacter and Pseudomonas and Klebsiella and Citrobacter, it catabolizes your glutathione pool. So your GGT levels just to be, just tend to be more low end. So it just has more of a, it is having a more of a negative impact on your glutathione pools basically. Okay. So it's hard to, 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 to understand like definitively why they're just certain liver enzymes mm. and so forth are just a little bit more affected. It's a great question. I think maybe over time I can be a little bit more exact to why that. Mm. Uh, and, and a lot of the time it might be to, to do even with like the impact on certain like micronutrients as well. Mm. I mean, if you, you, you look at like, uh, like, you know, GGT is um, the cofactor for that is magnesium. Um, and also key cofactor for glutathione is magnesium. And the thing that we forgot to mention with ALP, okay, is that is zinc dependent. Okay. So mm. it can actually be a reflection of like, you know, zinc deficiency. Um, yeah. It might be that, you know, you're eating food that is just not very high in zinc. Because once again, we've talked about this, like 49% of the world agricultural soils are deficient in zinc. You might have like hydrochloric acid issues. You're not producing enough stomach acid. You might have issues with the paratel cells and the, the epithelium within the gastric pits in your stomach lining. Okay? Um, H. pylori, helicobacter. I mean, obviously I'm playing devil's advocate here. But to answer your question, that can be hard to completely understand why, why particular liver enzymes are affected mm. a little bit more from certain types of bacterial issues than others. I have heard the hypothesis that there's a lot of alkaline phosphatase found in the gut lining. And so parasites potentially damaging the gut lining or, or leaky gut could cause an elevation ALP. I've not seen any literature to support that. Personally, I don't That's feel like- That's basically what I'm saying. Yeah. 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 But I also feel like I don't see an elevation in ALP just from permeability either. That doesn't seem to be a pattern. That doesn't seem to be a pattern. No. I mean, like, once again, like, you know, it, like if we're looking and we, and we want to make it clear, we're not saying that your ALP is the de definitive uh, no. indication around like protozoa parasites, like parasitic infection, like blasto and dentamifagillus and all these types of ones, okay? Because we're going to look at other markers on top of that, okay? Yeah. I mean, once again, it could be the malnourishment. It could be the undereating, okay? It could be crash dieting, okay? Uh, you know, poor nutrient absorption and all those types of things. I mean, that, that you know, but we would correlate that with things like your urea levels then being low, your creatinine levels being low end, your total protein being low end. So, and that would be the reflection around like malnourishment and under eating. Yep. But if we looked at your total white blood cell count, your neutrophil count, your lymphocytes, because uh, parasitic infection, especially when it's been going on for a long period of time, just tends to create like full immunosuppression. Yeah. Uh, maybe the eosinophils initially when it's acute, because they deal with multicellular parasites, the eosinophils might be a little bit elevated. Or over time, you'd expect that the eosinophils might be sitting like 0.0, .0 where they're just yeah. like immunosuppression, they've crashed out. Okay, so... I mean, that's obviously that, you know, the big point that we've got to get across is it's not so much that's the major trend that we're seeing with the protozoa parasite. It's yes, that, but with all these other markers yes. as well. Yeah. And I don't know if people have picked this up based on listening to what you've been saying so far, but, you know, when we talk about things like SIBO, there's not a good way of testing that. There's a SIBO breath test and, you know, maybe at some point we'll talk about that, but it's pretty questionable how accurate that is. But 
just by talking about some of these blood markers, you've actually talked about how not only can you potentially pick up SIBO, you can start to differentiate if it's negative gram bacteria based SIBO, if it's more positive gram bacteria based, if it's, you know, if we're looking more at parasitic infections compared to yeast infections, that data is to me, that's better than, than any other test out there. And it's just from a blood test and just looking at standard blood panels, just simply knowing what the patterns are to expect, not just one marker, but you see this whole SIBO pattern, you see deficiency, MCV high, ALP low, you see the neutrophils low, you see maybe iron low, and then you see GGT low and urea high, that's SIBO plus LPS, most likely. Look and, at and, symptoms. And then you can go a step further than that. And I'll, I'll, once again, I'm not going to try to go down the black hole like fully, but you know, you, you might be picking up like the, okay, LPS negative gram bacteria is a big problem here. And then the person goes, well, you know, I've got issues with my lipid markers. So in relation to that, because we know like if it's H. pylori, helicobacter, other negative gram bacteria like LPS, well, this raises like lipoproteins. It mm. raises things like LDL cholesterol. It raises like LDL particle number one. And that can be the reason to why your lipid markers are elevated. So if you're yeah. seeing the elevation in the total cholesterol, the LDL cholesterol, most of the time, you're not going to have the, the LDL particles in that instance, the small LDL particles. But you see, like, so you're picking up the negative gram bacteria. This is my point. And this is the reason yeah. to why yeah. you've got the issues with the LDL cholesterol, yeah. and the total cholesterol. And it's not because, you know, you've got arthrosclerosis no. and, and plaquing and, you know, a higher risk of cardiovascular disease and heart attack and stroke. And, and you're not like a lot of the time, the reason to why you've got the elevation in the LDL cholesterol and the total cholesterol is the negative gram bacteria. And then you get recommended to take statins okay yeah. where actually what you've got is a negative gram bacteria issue yeah yeah and the same could be said for so many things you could say about thyroid as well you know lps is going to affect the adenase enzymes you're going to have an issue it will look like conversion issues and then you get blood done you look just at the thyroid markers and you're told you've got a conversion issue take selenium or you got hashimoto's or, or whatever and it's like well no look at all these other markers pointing to lps so exactly, yeah. It explains and that's why, we're, and that's and that's why we're going to cover LPS. So pro probably yeah. we'll have to cover it in a couple of podcasts. I mean, that's how <laughs> significant it is. Just an LPS. Yeah. We better move on. Let's do one more marker. I think we 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 decided just to do a bit of a combo here, and and and, and maybe just. I mean, this is probably a little bit more straightforward, or maybe yeah. not. Yeah, okay. hopefully. But we're just going to talk about some base markers. I call them base markers, like micronutrient markers. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And just how, once again, this would just be an example of you just going okay, well, this is high. So you're getting enough of that. Yeah. So you're getting enough of that. So you don't need to worry about it. Okay. Yeah. And so this is probably the example that we want to use. And like, maybe we just start with like magnesium. Yeah. I think people like, obviously, hopefully people understand how important magnesium is. They're like 850 enzymatic process in the body, like chemical reactions, 80% of metabolic functions in the body involve magnesium. And this is yeah. huge. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And a lot of the time, people might just be looking at like serum magnesium levels, like plasma, and then just using that as the indication of where their magnesium levels are sitting. The, the, the problem with serum magnesium is that really, it's only going to really show up when it's low. It's only going to really show up like a severe magnesium deficiency. That's only really what's going to affect that. And that's, I guess that's my point. Um, so, and so basically, because with that, when we're testing serum magnesium, we're only testing a very small percentage of actual total magnesium. Hey, most zero 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 point eight percent. Yeah, that's what it is. So, what and what about the other ninety nine point two percent of the magnesium in the body? And most magnesium is in the cell. Like forty nine percent of magnesium is in the cell. Okay. So, if then serum magnesium is low, then we've probably got a pretty good indication 
that your body wasn't even able to regulate serum levels, let alone how much it needs tissue, bone, cell, everything else. Yeah. So that's going to say, well, it's probably low, but you're saying, well, it's less than a percent. So if it's normal, is that telling us that all the other tissues that need magnesium are fine? Probably not. Correct. Yeah. And, 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 and the thing is, and, the, and I, I was taught this at, you know, at a particular stage as well, where people go, well, okay, like serum magnesium, plasma magnesium, okay, it's just not a great indication. So you look, should look at red cell magnesium. And yes, I, I, like I agree, red cell magnesium is a slightly better indication of what's happening with your magnesium levels than serum magnesium. But the problem is I would still say that's not very accurate. I mean, well, they say that might be a depiction of about 2% of the magnesium, okay? So it's still not that amazing. So it's marginally better, mm. okay? And I would say that, you're going to be better to use like even like looking at your GGT levels because yep. obviously a cofactor for GGT, which I spoke about is magnesium. Yes. Um, yes. You could look at something like hair mineral analysis. I'm not saying that you have to get all this testing done, but you can't just, you, you couldn't just look at red cell magnesium. You couldn't just look at serum magnesium and just go, well, that's higher end. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the time, like magnesium is so important. It can even like shunt it from your vital organs. And then you're looking and saying that, basically, oh, I've got enough magnesium and actually you've got a magnesium deficiency and then you stop taking something like magnesium and that is going to leave you, like a magnesium deficiency is going to leave you a lot more prone to things like hypertension, like blood pressure yeah. issues, calcification issues because magnesium controls the calcium channels, even things like type 2 diabetes. I mean, magnesium yeah. is so important for insulin sensitivity. Like everyone talks about all these other compounds like magnesium, you need it for tyrosine kinase, you need it for the insulin receptors. That's how important it is. You know, so, and leaves you a lot more prone to cardiovascular disease, okay? If you, and, and just heart attack and stroke. I mean, obviously you can read up stats on that. So I, I guess our point around this one, you can't just look at like high red cell magnesium you know, high serum magnesium, just go, oh, I just don't need magnesium. What values you work off is serum magnesium? Well, like I, like I go towards the top end with magnesium, yeah. like just with both. So something like red cell magnesium, I might go like 2.65 to 2.95 is the highest end. Okay? And I would say, you know, 1.0 to 1.10 for something mm. like serum or plasma. I know you can be I'm pretty similar. similar. Yeah, I do yeah, 0.9 yeah. to 1.1. 1. 1, yeah. So pretty similar. Yeah. And the same issue, like this, this bothers me so much when I hear this. The same thing happens with B12. And the amount of times I'll get a client who's got marginally elevated B serum B12 levels, which again, anything serum is not a good indicator. And then we look at how well the body's utilizing B12. Maybe we look at markers like mean capacitor volume and we can see mean capacitor volume is significantly elevated in this poor tissue uptake of B12. And the doctors looked at the serum B12 and said, it's high. You need to stop supplementing. Do not take B12. It's bad for you. It's like, no, it's not bad for you. This person is freaking deficient in it. The body's literally not synthesizing red blood cells efficiently because of it. And we're using serum B12 to influence that. Like it's madness. And there can be some other factors to why the total B12 could be a little bit more elevated. I mean, yeah. things like yeast and candida and acetaldehyde and ethanol, that can be a bit of a correlation where the total B12 is high. It's essentially not, you know, because we're not getting the active B12. I'm not yeah. going to say that's the be all and end all either. Okay. But, you know, that could be the reason that the B12 is not actually getting uptaken in the cell properly. Um, so I'm just, you know, there's, there's a lot more to it. I guess that's our big point. And I think we just wanted to use one more example around this one. And that's just looking at something like serum copper levels. 
Um, and we just want to, I, I just probably. But everyone's to... deficient in copper, Dave. Everyone needs to be taking copper and copper is the solution to all of our health issues nowadays as of 2022. Yeah, and, and like, and we're, we're not going to go down, like, even though we might want to go down the realms of like, you know, zinc to copper ratio and your zinc's got to be 25% higher than your copper. And like, like we're not going to go, you know, down that sort of like rabbit hole. And look, we understand how important copper is aids metabolism it's a powerful antioxidant i mean helps to keep in check certain types of like pathogenic strains of bacteria like shishia coli it's got some benefits around yeast and candida as well red blood cells really important for that like cell growth okay so histamine thiamine oxidase yeah like we 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 get it yeah okay? like connective tissue collagen so it's really important for the gut lining and obviously like tendons ligaments cartilage okay all this all this stuff but you can get copper toxicity. And when you do get copper toxicity, okay, that can really damage your, or, I mean, more to the point, it can cause death. Okay. That's what people need to understand. Okay. It can cause death. Okay. But you can cause serious damage to your vital organs, like the heart, the liver, the kidneys, okay, the brain. And when you've got copper toxicity, you can definitely get a lot of like nausea. So that's how it can show up from a symptom perspective. I just think, the reason we want to talk about this is because you just might look at it and that you've got low serum copper. And then once again, we just get taught this polarized way of thinking that's low. Here you go. Take that boost it up. So what happens if someone has like Wilson's disease and cause actually in Wilson's disease, the serum copper is actually going to show up low. And so this actually basically means that copper is accumulating in the vital organs. And so what you're essentially like, you, you've looked at it and you've just gone low serum copper, here's copper. And that would just be an example of actually how you've made that person's problem even worse. And there can be issues around like seroplasma and account like iron can be accumulating within the vital organs as well. Okay. So I guess what we want to say is like, you can't just look at something just like it's low, it's high. Oh, that's pretty straightforward. It's low. Take this. Mm. Because like, you know, the example is you've taken a problem. There's a problem there and actually made it worse yeah that's, that's more to the point yeah, okay? yeah and so what what you really need to understand i guess this is probably my big point you need to understand the nuances you have to you have to understand the nuances if anyone you know like if anyone wants to prove me wrong prove jake wrong on this okay like you don't need to understand the nuances it is just like this is this this is that you know we want to learn that's all we want to do yeah okay but we strongly believe that you need to you need to take on board all the information. So just with the copper bit, I don't want to fear monger too much about that. So are you saying people need to avoid all copper? It's going to kill them. It's that's, not kill what them. I'm, that's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> yeah. Look, most of the time, can there be people that, and once again, you could just got to use a lot more other markers to yeah. really establish what's going on. Seroplasma and all these other ones. You can't just, you know, my thing would be, you can't just use that one marker as the indication. No. Yeah, okay. So ideally we should be getting seroplasmin, zinc, copper, iron, looking at these all together, yeah? Correct, correct, yeah, okay? Um, that's what you need to do, yeah, okay? And like most of the time, you know, people, when they were making the right choices through nutrition and so forth, they should be getting a decent amount of copper anyway. Yeah, okay? so if someone's eating organ meats, eating liver. Organ meats, like liver's very high in copper, okay? Yeah. If you're eating organ meats, you're definitely getting a, a, a decent amount of copper, okay? Even a lot of like plant matter can be pretty high in copper, but it's, it's, it totally depends on obviously the soil that it's yeah. growing in. But a lot of those soils can be, even like certain types of carbohydrates can be relatively high in copper. I don't think it needs to get to an extent where you need to, you know, drink from copper barrels or whatever that might be, copper water containers. A lot, a lot of people might be exposed to copper piping that could have an influence on that. But, you know, 
Yes, the zinc to copper ratio is really, really important. And likewise, yes, people can get completely carried away with zinc. We obviously have a preference when it comes to zinc supplementation, like zinc alcarnosine, for the reasons helping with the mucosal barrier, heat shock proteins, all these types of things. I don't know about you, but I don't really tend to use zinc picolinate and elemental no, zinc. No, I've and moved away from it. Yeah. I use zinc lysinate as zinc carnosine. That's yeah. basically it. Yeah. So we acknowledge that you've just got to be really mindful around that, but- you know, we're also not saying that, you know, just avoid copper because of some of the things that I've talked about, potential problems, okay? I'm yeah. just saying that try to get it out of, you know, good quality like organ meats and a lot of the foods that you, you, you're you yeah. consuming should be enough to actually help with your, with your copper. Yeah, yeah. I guess ultimately the point there is just know what the blood's telling you and know what they're not telling you. And just because a marker might be low doesn't necessarily mean you need to go supplement with it. And if it's high, it doesn't necessarily mean you need to stop it there. The amount like potassium, the amount of times I've heard people say, I've got high potassium, stop eating potassium. That's not going to change your potassium levels. That's not what it's about. So, you know, if we know- Most, these most markets, of the time, that's an indication around like <laughs> where, where things are sitting from, like an electrical system yeah. perspective, energy system perspective, adrenal Adrenals. insufficiency, yeah. hypercortisolemia, hypocortisolemia, cortisol resistance. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Um, that's what, it, that, once again, that's probably a conversation for another time because that's yeah. other, you know, uh, nuances that we could be talking about with all these other blood markers yeah. where people are really, they're just addressing it according to the blood marker. And there's a very, very high chance that you potentially could make the, the, the problems for that individual even worse. Yeah. So it's a tough one, but I guess our take home message is don't look at bloods in a marker by marker fashion. You know, if you look at it and just expect the market to tell you everything you need to know, just looking at one market, you're going to be misled. And that unfortunately means that maybe the people you're going to get your bloods tested, maybe they're not the people that can tell you that full story. I'm not saying don't listen to your doctor's advice. It's on my place to say that. But if they're not looking at the whole picture completely, it's unlikely you're going to get the full story. So it is a little bit tricky, but my recommendation would be to get your bloods done and then take them somewhere where people can look at that whole picture and see what the, the whole pattern is telling you as opposed to marker by marker. And ask more questions. Ask questions. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening, guys. As always, we hope this podcast was helpful. If you want to continue to connect with us, our social media profiles are linked in the show notes. And don't forget, the contents of this podcast are for educational purposes only. None of the information provided in a gut feeling is intended to treat, diagnose, or give medical advice. So please consult a healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle.